This podcast has language that some people might find offensive. Previously on Slow Burn, Tupac Shakur is becoming a superstar in music and film. Meanwhile, his life is coming apart. On November 30th, 1994... In New York City, rap star Tupac Shakur is listed in serious but stable condition tonight. He was shot five times, apparently in a random robbery, last night. Unknown gunmen attacked Tupac in the lobby of Quad Studios, where his friend Biggie Smalls was recording. The next day, Tupac was found guilty of sexual abuse. And soon after that, he was taken to Rikers Island to await sentencing. The songs that made Notorious B.I.G. famous were the ones he didn't even want to record. Big didn't even like Big Papa or Juicy. Here's producer Nasheem Myrick. You know how long it took him to do Big Papa? That was the last joint I think he did for that album. Juicy and Big Papa were the first singles off of Biggie's first album, Ready to Die. These were the songs that got the heavyset 22-year-old Christopher Wallace on MTV. While Juicy was a hit, it was Big Papa that reached number one on the rap charts. The infectious hooks brought listeners in. What won them over was the warmth in Biggie's voice, a sound that made him both relatable and totally unique. To all the ladies in the place with style and grace, allow me to lace these lyrical dishes in your bushes who rock grooves and make moves with all the mommy. But the teddy bear image that came through in those songs wasn't the whole story. Biggie had started dealing drugs as a 13-year-old dropped out of school at 16, and spent a few years hustling in his hometown of Brooklyn and in Raleigh, North Carolina. When he rapped about that life, he was speaking from experience. Here's Cheo Hodari Coker, who wrote the Biggie biography, Unbelievable. He had a certain charisma in the streets. I mean, he had a look about himself and he had a way about himself that he had true street cred, you know? That's why Biggie talks about the struggle, because it's like you make just enough money to do some basically silly shit, but then you, you're still out there getting robbed. You're still out there with your life on the line. In 1992, Biggie got written up in the unsigned hype column of The Source, one of the early influential hip-hop magazines. That brought Biggie's demo tape to the attention of Sean Puffy Combs. When Mateo Capolongo played the tape for Puffy, he remembers, the hip-hop mogul had one question. My recollection immediately after playing it is, is, is him asking me about how he looks. Capolongo is better known as Matty C. He wrote the unsigned hype column. It's a good sign, you know what I mean? He was excited, like everybody knew. He was the fashion guy, that's what Puff did. He took an artist and he put the right outfit on him and, you know, that style, so he wanted to know what he was working with. Now he just, he's got to know how he looks. He keeps pressing me, I'm like, I'm like yeah, he's, is he fat? Yeah, he's fat, he's fat. He's like, is he fat boy's fat or heavy D fat? Like, uh, some, some in between, maybe. Puffy saw Biggie as an updated version of Heavy D, a lovable, plus sized womanizer. Puffy was every bit the star that his artists were. He'd appeared in music videos and in an ad campaign for fashion designer Carl Kanai. Hip-hop writer Scott Polson Bryant wrote that Puffy was his own best logo. Puffy signed Biggie twice, first to Uptown Records, and then later to his own label, Bad Boy, which put out Biggie's biggest hits. Juicy was a rags-to-riches story. Big Papa was mostly about the riches. Biggie liked that those songs and their videos got him noticed, but he wasn't totally sold on the image they created for him. He wanted to make a different kind of music, 
Music that sounded like what Nasheem Myrick was cooking up. Myrick was a community college dropout from Queens. He was working as an engineer in Puff Studio when he made his first beat. And then once Big heard it, he was like, ah, my God, no-brainer. Myrick's beat wasn't lush and funky like Biggie's hits. It was tense and sparse, like a film noir soundtrack. Biggie still thought of himself as a street hustler, and he wrote verses for Myrick's track that reflected where he'd come from and what he'd been through. Big and Myrick's collaboration was called Who Shot Ya? It was released late February 1995 as a B-side to Big Papa. Who shot ya? Separate the weak from the opsa. Leap hard to creep them Brooklyn streets. It's all nigga. Fuck all that bickering beef. The story Biggie tells in Who Shot Ya is simple and brutal. Someone's out to get him, but Biggie gets to drop on his foe. Niggas want to creep, got to watch my back. Think the cognac and endo sack make me slack. Make me I switch it all that. Cop sucker G's up. Uh, one force move, get Swiss cheese up. The song ends with a violent skit. Who Shot You was an instant classic, and it showed the rap world that Biggie wasn't just a good-natured player. He, he had a lot of commercial stuff out. I mean, to the public. If you didn't get the album, you knew Big for the radio joints. You didn't really know him for the what he's meant to do, like what he loved to do, what he does. Then Hushacha comes out as a single. Radio picks up on that, and it's hard as hell. It's the hardest joint on radio. It also thrust Biggie and his crew into the middle of a conflict they wanted no part of. Who Shot You came out a few months after Tupac was shot by unknown assailants in the lobby of Quad Studios. Tupac was incarcerated, hurt, and suspicious. He already wondered if Biggie and Puffy knew who'd attacked him, or if they might have been involved. Now Biggie was putting out a song called Who Shot You," in which he cast himself as a gunman. How did Biggie and Tupac communicate, and miscommunicate, after the quad shooting? How did the hip-hop world organize itself around a cross-country turf war? And when Tupac got out of prison, was it too late to turn things around? This is Slow Burn. I'm your host, Joel Anderson, and this is episode three, What's Beef? Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C., on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. 
but there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. So was who shot you really directed at Tupac? Nasheem Myrick, who worked on it with Biggie, says no. It's like, why didn't we see that? We wasn't even paying attention to that. It's like no way in the world they would mistake that. You know? We have no reason, no motive at all to have set Pac up. Where's the motive? What's, what's the issue? But Tupac couldn't be sure. That's how beefs tend to escalate with a series of ambiguous provocations. When Tupac was being carried out of Quad Studios on a stretcher, he'd stuck up his middle finger. Biggie's childhood friend Chico Delvec was there that night. He says Biggie thought the gesture was directed at him. Tupac is up the elevator on the, uh, the hospital bed, and he's wheeling him out, and he's looking at us with his middle finger up like, fuck you niggas. He, to y'all. Right. Tupac thought maybe who shot you was Biggie's response. Not long before he heard who shot you, Tupac was angry about something else, a newspaper article that ran in New York's Village Voice. That article was by the journalist Ture. Ture argued that Tupac was a mediocre rapper, but a master performance artist. He'd watched Tupac in court, and he'd seen Tupac make his dramatic speech outside the courthouse, the one where he called Diana Jackson a woman scorned. He'd described Tupac's entire public life and persona, the multiple arrests, the violent assault at Quad Studios, the courtroom appearance in a wheelchair, as dangerously compelling and ecstatically brilliant. That ongoing performance, Touré wrote, has kept his lackluster professional work culturally relevant and commercially viable. Tupac read all of this while he was locked up in Rikers Island, and he felt profoundly hurt. Touré was calling him fake and suggesting that his wild ups and downs were nothing but a front. So Tupac called another writer, one he thought would be more sympathetic to his point of view. I got the call that I was the only journalist that Tupac wanted to talk to, to tell the story because he trusted me. That's Kevin Powell. Powell was familiar with the idea of life as performance art. In 1992, he'd been a cast member on the first season of MTV's The Real World. On the show, Powell got slotted into the role of angry young black man. The following year, he met Tupac at a music conference. Pac looked over at me, and he smiled that smile, that big toothy grin he always had. And he, somehow we merged, and it was almost like there was no one else there. You know what I'm saying? And he said, man, I watched you on the MTV's The Real World that first season. I had your back on that show, dog. I had your back on that show. Powell was working as a staff writer for Vibe, an ambitious magazine founded by Quincy Jones and bankrolled by Tom Warner. At a time when most media outlets didn't take hip-hop seriously, Vibe and The Source allowed rappers to promote their work, establish their personas, and talk to their fans. Powell had written a Vibe cover story about Tupac in 1994. The headline was, Is Tupac crazy or just misunderstood? That was still a live question a year later, when Powell went to visit Tupac and Rikers. The moment that Tupac started talking, because he just started spitting stuff out, what I remember is that um, we had edited out the piece, but Tupac kept ending every sentence with um, woo-dee-woo, woo-dee-woo, because he was nervous. And I, I remember him um, smoking cigarettes. I feel like he had the 
smoke cigarettes just to get through it because he knew he was downloading something very heavy. Tupac told Powell that this was his last interview. He said, if I get killed, I want people to have the real story. Tupac said that he was still in pain from the injuries he'd suffered in the quad shooting and that he was having nightmares. The message was clear. What he'd been through wasn't a performance. It was real. But people who read Kevin Powell's story didn't focus on Tupac's personal torment. Instead, they seized on something else Tupac said. Something about the ambush at Quad Studios. Tupac told Powell that Biggie and Puffy might have had something to do with it. Tupac described the night in vivid detail. The army fatigues his assailants wore, which made him think they were Biggie's security guys. The way they kicked and stomped on him, as though they were mad at him. How Puffy wouldn't come near him afterward. The story Tupac told was incendiary. I think it was cathartic for him just to say these things. Do I think it was right for him to implicate Diddy and Biggie? No, no, no. And, and, and keep in mind, Biggie and Tupac were very were friends. They were friends. Why, in Tupac's mind, would Biggie and Puffy have had it in for him? What was their motive? Maybe he thought Biggie was feeling competitive and saw Tupac as an obstacle to his success. Or maybe Tupac's suspicion was born of jealousy. Biggie was on the rise, and Tupac felt he'd never gotten enough credit for mentoring him. Or maybe Tupac never really thought they were involved, and he just wanted to start some highly visible trouble. That's what Nasheem Myrick thinks. According to Myrick, Puffy visited Tupac and Rikers before the Vibe interview came out, specifically to tell Tupac that he and Biggie had nothing to do with the quad shooting. They told me they went to the island, told Pac Big had nothing to do with it. You know what I'm saying? And Pac had already did the vibe joint, they said, though. He already did it. He was like, damn, Pac. They was like, Pac was like, damn, I just did that vibe interview, though. But Pac knew that Big had nothing to do with it. But, you know, you want to make moves. Not everything got to be real. Pac's a smart dude, right? Use that to his advantage. You think it was all hype? Well, was it true? Hi there, it's Julia Louis-Dreyfus. You may know me from my podcast called Wiser Than Me, where I talk to older women and get their wisdom from the front lines of life. I was amazed by how many people told me our show made them look forward to getting older, which is why I'm here to talk about season two of the show. Sally Field, Billie Jean King, Beverly Johnson, Ina Garten, Bonnie Ray, just to name a few. All hail old women. Wiser Than Me season two is out now from Lemonada Media. Tupac's interview with Kevin Powell appeared on the cover of the April 1995 issue of Vibe. It came out around the same time that Tupac's third album, Me Against the World, debuted at number one on the Billboard charts. By that time, Tupac had been moved to Clinton Correctional Facility, a cold and isolated maximum security prison in far upstate New York. He was one of the biggest stars in the world, and he was broke, incarcerated, and publicly accusing his former friends of setting him up. Vibe reached out to Puffy and Biggie for comment, but they declined to respond. Chico Delvec remembers Biggie's reaction. He was upset because he like, yo, he get being accused of something he ain't do. And it was just thrown in his face. He knew he had nothing to do with it. So he was just pissed off about this whole situation. Big was like, you know what? 
this dude is not coming clean with us about anything. So what I'm going to do is just stay away from it. And Puff is like, yo, you know what, just, just do this music, man, and just, you know, stay focused. It became increasingly hard to focus on music, though. The whispers about Biggie and Puffy's involvement in Tupac's shooting never went away. And who shot you clouded the picture? Biggie and Puffy decided they needed to defend themselves. In the August 1995 issue of Vibe, Biggie said he wasn't involved in the quad shooting and that who shot you wasn't about Tupac. He also told Vibe that the next time he saw Tupac, he wanted an apology. Puffy said that Tupac got a lot of people and a lot of bullshit with that interview. This back and forth wasn't just about Biggie, Puffy, and Tupac. A personal beef was quickly turning into a regional one. Lil Sean, the rapper that Tupac was supposed to record with that night at the quad, had come up in Brooklyn. He told Vibe, niggas on the West Coast are saying, yo, tell that nigga Lil Sean to be careful, because niggas on the West Coast are calling his name. Hip-hop had been born in New York, and rappers there had always looked down on rap scenes in other parts of the country. Here's Dan Charnas, who wrote for The Source and later worked for Rick Rubin's American Recordings label. It wasn't beef. It was essentially condescension from New York to the rest of the country, except maybe Philly, and resentment from everywhere else in the country towards New York. And in the offices of The Source and in the letters that came in to the editor, you could see a lot of the resentment of the condescension. So people on the West Coast were sick of New York acting like it owned hip-hop. One of those people was marrying Suge Knight, and he had decided to do something about it. Knight was six foot four and more than 300 pounds. He'd been nicknamed Suge as a kid because of his sweet disposition, but he'd changed as he'd grown up. Suge got work as a bodyguard for popular musicians, which gave him a sense of all the money to be made in the music industry. He moved into management and publishing, using his connections and his intimidating presence to build a roster of artists. His big move came in 1991, when he found out that the rapper and producer Dr. Dre was ready to quit N.W.A. Using his talent for persuasion, Suge helped Dre get out of his recording contract, and together they founded Death Row Records. The music Death Row put out was something new in rap, more violent, more graphic, more derivative of funk music, and ultimately, more popular. The label's first two releases were Dre's The Chronic and Doggy Style by Dre's protege, Snoop Doggy Dog. They were both huge hits. Snoop Doggy Dog, his album Doggy Style, was the hottest selling album in the country this week, beating out everyone from Pearl Jam to Sinatra. In October, while he Flush with success, Suge shopped around for more talent. He put together a group called The Dog Pound, and he signed a former gospel singer who'd appeared on Snoop's earliest demo tapes, Nate Dog. Suge even tried to poach the Wu-Tang Clan from their label. But the rapper Suge wanted most of all was Tupac. In 1993, he'd given Tupac $200,000 to contribute a song to a movie soundtrack. Even so, Tupac continued putting out his albums on Interscope, a label that was partly owned by Tom Warner and that had a deal to distribute Death Row's releases. By 1995, things looked different. Tupac was still a huge star, but he was stuck in prison in Dannemore, New York, a place so remote that the quickest way to see him was to fly into Canada and drive an hour and a half south. I used to go up to visit him in prison, up at Clinton Correctional Facility. 
That's Stuart Levy, one of Tupac's entertainment attorneys. Dannemora, that's where it is, yeah. It looks like a castle, and it's just, you walk in, and I'd been to prisons before, but I'd been to white-collar cases. When I was in law school, you'd handle cases for, like, uh, uh, securities fraud or something like that. This is, like, you know, heavy-duty stuff where the, the guards are carrying uh, submachine guns and everything else. It's a little disconcerting. It was a hard place for a famous rapper. For one thing, plenty of guys from the street wanted to make a name for themselves by challenging a celebrity. For another, as we covered in our last episode, most law enforcement officers weren't big rap fans. And the guards had ways of making Tupac's life difficult. The guard comes by and ceremoniously puts his glove on his hand. And says, well, Pocky, uh, it's time for a rectal exam. And I said, what are you talking about, a rectal exam? I've been sitting here for six hours with him fully clothed, with your prison guard on the catwalk above me. I, I didn't slip anything into his anus, you know? Well, we have to check. And they just do it to, to humiliate you. So Tupac, still traumatized by the Quad Studios assault and recovering from multiple bullet wounds, was being abused by guards and threatened by fellow inmates. He was placed on lockdown for smoking weed. And although he had the number one album in the country, he was still broke. He'd spent a lot of money recording the album and more on lawyers. Suge Knight made several trips to Dannemora. On those visits, Suge told Tupac that Death Row would be better for him than Interscope. Suge said Death Row could make him a bigger star, and he promised to support Tupac no matter what. He also said he'd help Tupac get bailed out of prison. Before the quad shooting, Tupac hadn't been seen as either an East Coast or a West Coast rapper. He'd spent part of his childhood in Baltimore, and when he'd started rapping, he'd called himself MC New York. He'd come of age as a performer in California, but as an adult, he'd spent a lot of time in Atlanta. But now everyone was choosing sides, and the hip-hop press was making East versus West rap's biggest and most combustible storyline. I was quite disturbed by different magazines, such as The Source and Vibe magazine, and what they were doing to the music by uh, putting East Coast versus West Coast. And I said, stop that. That's, you're setting up a storm. That's Andre Brown. He goes by Dr. Dre, but he's not that Dr. Dre. This Dr. Dre was a weekday co-host on Yo! MTV Raps, which made him one of the most recognizable faces in hip-hop. When The Source decided to launch an awards show for rap music, MTV's Dr. Dre and his co-host Ed Lover were obvious choices to MC. But Dre and Ed were worried. They thought bringing together Puffy's Bad Boy crew and Suge's Death Row stable might lead to trouble. The one thing that Ed and I made very clear is, like, don't put us in the middle of some war of words. That's not going to be good. The Source Awards took place on August 3rd, 1995, at the Paramount Theater in New York's Madison Square Garden. The idea was to give real hip-hop some love. The Grammys had mostly given awards to pop and novelty rappers like MC Hammer, Sir Mix-a-Lot, and The Fresh Prince. The Source Awards were going to celebrate the music that hip-hop fans respected, and they'd do it in front of a national audience. It was a disaster. It was a heavy New York East Coast crowd. It really was. People from all different walks. But it was majority people from the East Coast, and they took offense to certain groups. If people from the East Coast were taking offense to the rappers from out West, that was fine with Suge Knight. He hadn't come to make nice. We had niggas on the roof. Like, we had a team out there. Like, I remember them coming in the hallway and... 
them having this big-ass bag full of guns and shit. That's Danny Stewart, an R&B singer known as Danny Boy. He was 16 years old in 1995, and he was being groomed as Death Row's next star. Suge had become his legal guardian. They got this big-ass duffel bag full of guns and shit, and everybody reaching for a gun. So I, I go to reach for one, two, Suge, like, what the fuck is you doing? <laughs> Suge's like, hey, man, what you doing? We good, man. They got us. <laughs> we kind of knew, you know what I mean? Because threats were had been given, and, you know, you could feel the tension. Danny Boy and Suge sat near the front. The ceremony opened with a 10-minute medley of Death Row's hits. The stage was set to look like a prison cell block. One after another, the label's artists emerged. Dr. Dre, The Dog Pound, Nate Dogg, Snoop. It was a serious flex of Death Row's star power. Come on, New York! As I look up at the sky My mind starts tripping, a tear drops my eye My body temperature falls But there was more. Tupac had finally agreed to sign with Death Row. But he couldn't join Suge on stage. He was 320 miles north of Madison Square Garden, in a prison cell. Instead of the real Tupac, Death Row had a cardboard cutout made, and they put that on stage with Dre and Snoop. No one noticed. Here's Reggie Wright, Death Row's head of security. I was hoping most people caught him in the cage, because I knew I was a part of putting that there, you know, helping getting that there. So I thought that was the big announcement. I don't think anybody in there motherfucking recognized it or noticed it. <laughs> to this day, I, nobody has ever talked about it but me and Snoop. So that big reveal fell flat. When Suge Knight got up on stage, he sent a much clearer message. I'd like to tell Tupac to keep his guards up. We're riding with him. But it was something else Suge said that really got the audience's attention. A shot he took at Puffy and Bad Boy Records. Any artist out there want to be an artist and want to stay a star... I don't want to, I want to have to worry about the executive producer trying to be all in the videos, all on the record, dancing, coming death row. Suge was taking on Tupac's feud as his own, in the most public way imaginable. The New York audience responded to Suge's provocation by booing, loudly and relentlessly. It was just what Andre Brown and Ed Lover had been afraid of. Right after... Uh, Suge Knight made that comment. First thing I said is, get the car ready. <laughs> Ed said the same thing. Ed was looking, oh, well, cause we were, no, we, you know, we were playing tough. Oh, we ain't scared. We ain't scared of nothing. It's the car in the back. It's the car running. The driver's ready, right? Okay. Because I want to read about the incident. I don't want to be a part of the incident. When Death Row's Dr. Dre came on stage to accept the award for producer of the year, the crowd booed again. Snoop snatched the mic away from Dre to confront the audience. What? Wait, wait, wait. The East Coast don't love Dr. Dre and Snoop Dogg? The East Coast ain't got no love for Dr. Dre and Snoop Dogg and Death Row? Y'all don't love us? Y'all don't love us? Well, let it be known then. We don't give a fuck. We know y'all East Coast. We know where the fuck we at. Puffy tried to cool things down. Before presenting Snoop with the award for Solo Artist of the Year, he implored the two coasts to come together as one. Not to separate us and all this east and west that needs to stop. So give it up for everybody from the east and the west that won tonight. One love. The audience clapped politely. When Snoop came on stage to accept his award, Puffy made a point of giving him a hug. But Puffy also seemed to be everything Suge accused him of being. 
an insatiable narcissist and a producer who wanted to be the star. To kick off a medley of bad boy performances, he stood on a podium at the center of the stage, head bowed as if in prayer. At the close of his monologue, Puffy fanned the flames of the bad boy death row conflict. He said, I live in the East, and I'm going to die in the East. Despite everyone's fears, there was no violence at the Source Awards or at any of the after parties. That came the next month on neutral territory. Suge and Puffy's honorages crossed paths at a club in Atlanta at a birthday party for the rapper and producer Jermaine Dupri. Suge's crew included Jai Hassan Jamal Robles, a 240-pound former gang member known to his friends as Big Jake. Suge liked to roll with bloods from his old neighborhood in Compton and he often tried to help them out with jobs. Big Jake was a tough guy. He wouldn't have been around otherwise. But Reggie Wright said he was also committed to building a real career in the music industry. He was the only one of the homies that was really trying, or at least working hand-in-hand with me, um, to learn the business and the beat. He would be the one that, at the office at 9 a.m., at the office doing stuff, and then hanging out with us, you know, when we all decided to come to work at five or six. At that party in Atlanta, the Death Row and Bad Boy entourages were feuding all night. Eventually, the dispute spilled outside of the club. As Big Jake Robles was getting into a limo, someone ran up and shot him with a semi-automatic. He was hit multiple times in his abdomen. Standing over his wounded friend, Suge told Puffy, I think you had something to do with this. Robles died from his injuries two weeks later. No one was ever charged. Here's Danny Boy again. Uh, That was really big. Uh, I wasn't there. But I think that was a big hurt for Death Row. That was like one of the first people from Death Row that we lost to like that. And uh, you could see Suge even dealing with the stress of it. You know, having his homie out on the road with him, knowing that he had to return to L.A. with Jake in a box. Now it was no longer about record sales or regional respect. It wasn't about who shot Tupac at Quad Studios. This was a blood dispute between Suge and Puffy. Soon after Big Jake died, Suge wired a $1.4 million bond to the New York Court of Appeals. Some of the money came from Interscope and Time Warner. Then he chartered a private jet to upstate New York. When he landed, he got in a rented white limousine and headed to the prison gates. A short while later, Tupac was free, pending an appeal of his conviction for sexual abuse. There's a photo of Tupac that might have been taken on that day, standing with his friend Big Psych. Tupac is wearing a white sweater and baggy gray jeans with a white cap perched backward on his head. He's smiling wide and pointing at the limo. You can tell he was so happy to be out of Dannemora. Danny Boy was part of the group that went to get Tupac and bring him to California. Then we went back to L.A. Uh, on, <laughs> on his way uh, from the airport. He's drinking and smoking and having a ball, and we get to the back of the studio. They call Pockets at the back door of the studio. He get out of the car, and he walked about five feet away from the door. 
face first to the ground. Passed out. <laughs> Everybody snatch him up, pouring water on him and shit. He look up and shit. <laughs> look around. I think he had, you know, drunk too much or smoked too much. But once Tupac entered the recording studio, his focus was sharp. Danny Boy says Tupac rarely left over the next few weeks. To see that light turn on of his working, uh, to see him like immediately after that, it was like you seen Pac come in that back door and I can count the times that I've seen him like leave out. And when he left out, he came right back. Tupac had gone to prison a year earlier. Now he had a career to rebuild, money to make, and scores to settle with Biggie and Puffy. He was ready to go to war. Next week on Slow Burn, Tupac's other nemesis, a 66-year-old civil rights activist. Slow Burn is a production of Slate Plus, Slate's membership program. You can sign up for Slate Plus to hear a bonus episode of the show this week and every week this season. In this week's bonus episode, you'll hear more about the rise of Biggie in an extended interview with Matty C., the writer of the unsigned hype column in The Source. He tells some really good stories about working with Biggie and Puffy, and he talks about what it was like to be at the Quad Studios the night Tupac got shot. To hear it, sign up for Slate Plus at slate.com slash slowburn. Slowburn is produced by me and Christopher Johnson with editorial direction by Josh Levine and Gabriel Roth. Sophie Summergrad is our researcher. Our mix engineers are Jared Paul and Paul Mounsey. Don Will composed our theme song. The artwork for Slowburn is by Lisa Larson Walker. Special thanks to Slate's Chow 2, Derek Johnson, Katie Rayford, Lowen Liu, Allison Benedict, and Jared Holt. And by the way, we created a playlist on Spotify to go with this season. We'll be updating it each week with new episodes and songs by Tupac, Biggie, and their collaborators. Check it out every week at the link in the show notes. Thanks for listening. Peace. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, For the ones who get it done.